and welcome to the Sacred Speaks. My name is John Price. I'm your host. Today I bring you an interview with Dr. Claire Villarreal, an expert in Tibetan Buddhism and Tantra and all things meditative. And uh, I guess we'll start there. So Claire is a fascinating, fantastic human being that I've been uh, aware of for quite some time. You can check her out at clairevillareal.com. And her, yeah, C-L-A-I-R-E-V-I-L-L-A-R-R-E-A-L.com. There is a ton of information on her website. You can check out meditation resources. She's got a blog. She's got a podcast called Letting Grow and a, 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 a tab for Buddhism for Beginners, going over some basics and some reincarnation resources, which I just found and I can't wait to look up. So thanks, Claire, for uh, having the conversation and for presenting this. This is a great resource for folks. She's also available on Insight Timer. She's, uh, she's doing a whole lot in the meditation world. And here is who she is. I'll read her bio real quick. Um, Raised as a fundamentalist Christian in a small town in North Texas, who by the time she left for Rice University in 1995, knew that the religious tradition of her childhood did not suit her. When she stumbled across a course on East Asian civilizations co-taught by Anne Klein, she signed up with a deep curiosity of Asian Asian, Asian religious culture. When Anne was assigned... Uh, or when Anna signed Buddhist texts for the class reading, Claire was immediately hooked on the Dharma and added a religious studies major. When Claire started meditating with Ajahn Ken at Wat Buddhavas, <laughs> definitely didn't get that right, and sitting with Anne Sangha at Don Mountain, she obsessed over Tibetan history and did a Tibetan studies semester abroad with the School of in- for International Training. After graduation, Claire taught secondary English for a couple of years, trained in Wing Chun and Tai Chi at Authentic Kung Fu for seven years and left in 2003 for a long trip to Asia. After returning home, began formally teaching meditation. In 2007, Claire joined the doctoral program of Rice University's Department of Religion and spent the next eight years learning, writing, and teaching about Tibetan Buddhism, contemplative ways of knowing, and how those can enrich modern Western life. After earning her PhD in 2015, she joined the staff of Don Mountain Center for Tibetan Buddhism, where she began, became the program's director before leaving in 2019 to offer meditation and spiritual instruction online and in person. Again, check her out at clairevillareal.com. But also look below, I'm including a link to uh, academia.edu for uh, several of her papers, one in which I read that I found very entertaining that we talked about. So thank you, Claire. Wonderful stuff. Really enjoyed this. As far as housekeeping, the, uh, the Sacred Speaks is brought to you by the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences. It's a boutique integrative clinic that my wife, Lila Scott Price, and I started. Check us out at the Center for HAS.com. T H E C E N T E R F O R H A S.com. Tons of resources on that site, too, including a panel discussion between the clinicians at the center where we address topics that are coming into our office quite a bit anxiety, depression, and the like. Um,. The music for the podcast, the theme music is from Modern Nations. Check them out at modernnationsmusic.com. Also, of course, check out the podcast website at thesacredspeaks.com, T-H-E-S-A-C-R-E-D-S-P-E-A-K-S.com, for the benefit of those listening. And um, also two, two upcoming episodes that I have already... Um, I've already done the interviews, but I've got the editing to do, so I'll be doing that over the next few weeks. Dr. Mark Plotkin is coming up next. He's an ethnobotanist who's educated at Harvard and Yale. Uh, he was a um, uh, an apprentice under Richard Schultes, 
um, author of Plants of the Gods and famed ethnobotanist. And our conversation was fantastic. We talked about the Amazon, um, traditional shamanism of the northern Amazon, and plant medicine. His podcast is Plants of the Gods, which I highly recommend checking out. And then the next week, or the next maybe week or two after that, is uh, an interview with Mark Ryan. He's a colleague that I work with at the, um, uh, on the curriculum committee at the Young Center down here in Houston. And he's a fantastic guide. His book is called A Different Dimension on Transpersonal Psychology, and my mind was quite expanded. So thank you both. I'm excited about those interviews. They'll be coming out soon. For now, um, for now, I think that's it. We'll leave it there. So enjoy the interview, and uh, lots come, lots going on here. So you'll be you'll be hearing more from me over the next two months. For now, we'll leave it there. What was your dissertation? Um. So it's actually like a. I guess you could say an intellectual history of Tibetan philosophy and political history around emptiness. So like I kind of started with this guy who came up with this like heretical notion of emptiness called Shentong or other emptiness. He's Dolpopa, lived in the you know late 13th to uh, mid 14th century. I love him so much. But basically he like wrote about emptiness and Buddha nature um in ways like nobody had written until then so like he wrote about buddha nature as being the atman he was like no there's an atman we have a truly established self it's buddha nature get over it and i was like what is this this is amazing and then and then the rest of my dissertation was like several hundred years of people trying to destroy his ideas uh trying to destroy the sect of buddhism that he kind of accidentally founded and then like the revitalization of his ideas in the 1800s with this like great non-sectarian movement so i got to just geek out on like all the history and all the philosophy and it was awesome well uh, so let's just dive in because you've actually sure. uh, you've written a dissertation on the subject that i wanted to start with well there we go <laughs> so um let's First, I want to I, I want to I want to talk about how misunderstood and misused misused the term tantric is. Um, I saw this episode of Portlandia once, and they were talking about uh, like put a bird on it. It was like yeah. put a bird on it, you know. Yeah. I, I I think these days if you just put tantric on it, you're, you're something like oh hey, you know what does that mean? And yeah. most people, I, I don't know. Um, I have a I have a, a, a learner's permit in this territory, um, <laughs> but I want to talk about emptiness and I want to talk about the difficulty in understanding emptiness from a Western kind of uh, um, perspective and what that even means, right? Like because yeah. we have that juxtaposition. Jung was Jung had talked a lot dis- despite how influenced he was by um, Eastern and in particular Chinese Taoist philosophy. The the the, the he was concerned about whether it be yoga or or even Taoism, that the Westerner wasn't kind of steeped in that tradition. There was this kind of lineage uh, connected more with the Mediterranean, which oddly enough is highly influenced by the East. But that Western think Greek, you know, Roman, so on and so forth. So, um, what in the hell was he getting at? What do you mean when you talk about emptiness? 
Why is it so difficult for Westerners? And is it difficult? How's that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good starting place. Yeah. Um, well, how many hours do we have? <laughs> We've got some time. Um, Whatever. We can go. <laughs> yeah. So the first thing I want to say is that emptiness is not just hard for Westerners to understand. It's hard for everyone to understand. And, you know, part of the reason for that is that basically these ideas about emptiness, however you frame them, and people have framed emptiness in lots of different ways, but like all of these teachings point beyond what our ordinary mind can cognize, like from a Buddhist perspective. And, you know, I think, I think a lot of people want to find a different word for it, you know, like they want it to be a translation error. Like it's, it's this central concept. How can it really mean emptiness? But that is actually what it means. Um, but what it means is not that everything is like empty, like er that everything like is non-existent or like this is a fake. Like if I just thought hard enough, I could like pass my hand through my computer. Like what it's saying, what emptiness means is that we're empty of something very specific. Like we're empty of inherent existence. So like, so, obviously we all walk around, we have driver's license and addresses and social security numbers, but that's only really valid on the conventional level. Like when you start talking about ultimate truth, that's really where you get into the realm of emptiness, which is not really different from Buddha nature, which we can talk about in a minute. Yeah. But in ultimate reality, there's nothing you can like posit and prove and like point your finger at. Um, and have it stay still, have it not be moving and shifting, even as you're pointing your finger at it. Does that make any sense? Well, totally. I mean, uh, it sounds to me like there's a perception issue. And so how our human perception functions is we want to see concrete, somewhat concrete, definitive, identifiable aspects of reality. And from a, from a, a perspective, if we blow that out, you know, and really lift above the stratosphere and look down... That, that I would assume a term like illusory, it doesn't mean it's not there. It's just not as it appears to be. Yeah, exactly. Like you can kind of break this down in like in terms of physics too. Like if you think about even our body, it seems like it's something easy to point a finger at. Like this is my body, right? But if you think about it, like every minute we're breathing in and breathing out. And so there's a certain exchange of molecules between the outside world and the inside world and so every single second, there's like a very subtle change to, to what's even a component of my body. And then if you think about, well, where, where did each of those molecules come from? You know, you start rewinding and, and you get mm -hmm. to like, you know, well, where did each carbon atom in my body come from? <laughs> well, it came from a dying star that died yeah. and burst open in a supernova before our sun even formed. So like now what's what's my body and what's not my body? Like it just the whole question becomes problematized of like thinking there is a body to point to. And then if you do the same thing with your mind, that's like even that's <laughs> even harder to find something to point to. Well, so to to me there and this is why I think Tantra is such an interesting, um, you know, my my learners permit in Tantra has me at least knowing the concept of the left and right-handed traditions. Yeah. And I can start to get around that because what I hear you saying is that there is a concrete reality. I mean, I can't point to this body and I can hold and touch and feel it, but that to imagine that reality is only this 
is a limitation that's not exactly true. But there's something about uh, human consciousness that, that has a need to connect with, understand, identify, and delineate concrete aspects of reality but that we also have this kind of notion of a spiritual self, which is, I'm sure, a very Western idea. But the, 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 the um, undefinable, non-dual, uh, illusory aspects that are behind the veil of my perception. How am I tracking so far? Yeah, I mean, I don't think that is just a Western concept. Um, maybe the idea that there's like a definable self, that once you get down to the spiritual level, you'll like you'll find a discrete thing and be able to point a finger at it and call that a self. You don't really find that idea in like the Buddhist tradition. But I mean, again, coming back to this notion of emptiness or this term, that's, it's only after we've really dived into what we think is solid and teased it apart you know we think we find something solid we pull that thread what happens if we keep pulling it sooner or later the, the sweater falls apart and it's only after the sweater has fallen apart and we're left with the space in sort of the aftermath of the unraveling of that sweater you know that space is what you could call emptiness that space is what you could call buddha nature like our true self that is not a self does that, does it, it make does, any sense? Because if we're defining terms here, what I hear, I don't know, and this gets deep, you know, into all the various like psychoanalysts and, you know, self, right, means a lot of different things. Yeah. But what I hear you saying is that there is, um, there's a need for a socialized self, you know, the, the, the sense of identity and a sense of orientation. Um, but that's not quite true because it's not a whole understanding and and so it sounds like these practices are in some way intending to remember the nature of nature right and and it's slippery as shit because you'll you um that ego i'll just call it an ego right that ego thing takes over and it's like it contributes to this amazing amnesia that human, you know, we have these fucking awesome experiences where it's like, oh my God, fucking God is within me and this is amazing. <laughs> and then I'm back to like piss, pissed off because the fan won't work. And I like, right. you know. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, we, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I like, I like what you were saying about Western and maybe that's a thread that we can go down later, but I, like what that actually means and what that signifier is. Um, but what, like what, like you, you just told me you wrote a dissertation essentially on emptiness and political, like why? What was so interesting to you about that? Yeah, well, um, this is something I love to talk about. So just stop me if I ramble on too long. But, um, you know, I, I think to give like the prologue to how I, I landed really on the topic of my dissertation, which is all about Dolpopa and uh, the Jonang school of Tibetan Buddhism, which used to be a flourishing school, kind of got smushed in the uh, 1650s when, uh, you know, the last, the last of the Tibetan civil wars happened. Um, what was distinctive about that school really was that they had a very a very different way of talking about emptiness and of talking about Buddha nature. 
um, which I'll get to in a second. But I think part of the reason that I was really drawn to it was that, you know, I grew up Christian. I grew up in the Church of Christ and I grew up with this idea of original sin. So the idea that like anything that comes from within me is already suspect because because you're tainted from the get go. Right. So like there's this sense of like deficiency that I think was just kind of woven into. And I'm sure there's more to blame than just the Church of Christ for that. But like it was kind of woven into the way I saw myself and the way I saw the world. Like there's this division between like the created and the creator and all the ultimate goodness lies with the creator. So like when I got into Buddhism, you know, this idea of emptiness, the way it's traditionally presented is that like emptiness is the ultimate nature of everything. I I mean, everybody would agree with that, like across the Buddhist spectrum, but the type of emptiness people are talking about often is the mere lack of inherent existence. So like when I look through body and mind and I try and find something solid and substantial and I spend years and meditate on it and and I finally come to this place where I'm like, holy cow, no, it's really not there. Like to present that as the final point of Buddhist inquiry to me has a very different feeling tone from what I stumbled across with Dolpopo's writings um, and this sort of, it's called shentong or emptiness of other. And the idea with that version of emptiness is that yes, you go through the entire process of like looking for an inherent self. Is myself my body? Is myself my mind? Are my memories me? Are my thoughts me? And each one of those, like in meditation, you tease it apart and, and you end up in a space where you're like, nope, that's not it. So that would be what, you know, from a Shendong perspective would be called Rongdong, self-emptiness. You look for a self, the, the thing you're looking at falls apart under examination. So self-emptiness. But what Dolpopa and these other Shendong authors are saying is like beyond that, like that's when it opens up and you realize other emptiness, which is the true Buddha nature, empty of all that is other than itself. So it's still a form of emptiness. Empty of all that is, say it again. It's, it's your Buddha nature, empty of all that is other than itself. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. So like, if you think about rongdong or self emptiness, you look for something that was there, you pulled it apart. It, you find the emptiness of self. But that opens up, you know, again, through, deep meditative practice that opens up into an experience of true, you know, your true nature, which is Buddha nature, which is empty of everything other than itself, which is the whole goal of spiritual practice is to purify everything that is not our Buddha nature and to arrive in that place. Of like, to me, it sounds like a purpose perpetual acid trip you know like we're talking <laughs> it's like does this shit stay forever shit i don't, <laughs> I, don't yeah. know how to, I don't know how to put on my clothes uh like what about that piece because from the kind of tip the traditional Jungian space we would talk about like well i need an ego right i need to be able to like yeah. set my alarm and orient myself and know that i'm driving between the lanes in traffic and you know, like if right. I, if, uh, you know, I've experienced moments like that, um, briefly, whoa, that's like radical. And 
I, I think I, I think about. Uh, I was actually just having a conversation recently with somebody who um, we had talked about. You know what a bad trip is, and somebody mentioned like, you know, well, usually a, a bad trip happens when somebody's like, "Is this going to last forever?" Mm. It's the ego sense of like, I need to get oriented. I need to be here. I need to find a way to like get into the tangible reality. And oh shit, am I like not able to do that ever again? And now yeah. I'm in a state of terror. Do you, do you think about that? Like the, 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 the ways in which the psychedelic community currently and the meditation communities are kind of saying similar things? Yeah, I think there's, um, there's actually a Tibetan term, a Tibetan idea that I think is really helpful here, which is nyam, which means like a meditative experience. Mm, like a peak experience. So, yeah. And a nyam is what you're kind of talking about here. Like when you have this cracking open experience, whether it happens in like a, you know, long retreat or through a psychedelic journey or whatever way, sometimes people have spontaneous openings like that. Sure. And for a moment, it's like you've taken off <laughs> your ordinary sense of reality and you've left it somewhere. And, you know, it is a profound experience. Um, in, the, in the Tibetan tradition, that's distinguished from realization, which is something mm -hmm. ongoing. Mm -hmm. So these nyam, you know, one way of thinking about them is that their function is to kind of show us what's out there to crack yeah. something open for us yeah. and to help us realize like, Oh my God, <laughs> reality is not anything like what I've been construct constructing it to be. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> no, but, and this is, I think is, you know, when it, when it comes to like functioning in the world, this is, I think where people sometimes, you know, think about, Oh my God, an ongoing state of that. Like, how could you even function that it's not the point to try and like navigate the world in, you know, the equivalent of like a permanent acid trip. <laughs> like the idea is those of us who are like not fully awakened yet can really only see the world either in a conventional way or in an ultimate way. But a Buddha, somebody who's like fully realized that ultimate state actually has both. Like Have at the same time. Have you met anybody that is in that space? I mean, I've met some amazing beings, but the thing is you wouldn't necessarily know, like according to the tradition. I mean, like my cat could be a Buddha right. manifesting as a cat to be like, look, dude, you need to learn how to love difficult people. All right, I'm going to claw you again. <laughs> I like that movie Soul because it, um, you know, the dude that was like throwing the sign all over the place and like dancing was the yes. guy who was like totally enlightened. You know? Yes. Yeah. What was it? Mystics Without Borders? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Yes. <laughs> but even that, like, I think that attitude certainly broadens one's experience if you're looking at your cat as your, like, teacher, you know, like, or I heard that, uh, I heard Satan, the term Satan was r connected to Hebrew, Satan, and what it meant was object thrown across one's path. Hmm. Like I, you know, and I think that's Elaine Pagel. So I, I, I it comes from a notable source. But uh, to me, when you have that attitude, which doesn't say like Satan is down there, and I'm going to locate mm -hmm. uh, him geographically and say it's evil, versus that like I can conceptualize any obstruction as mm -hmm. something that is 
teaching me, I mean, wouldn't, I get the world would be pretty radical if that, if that were our attitude. Yeah. Your cat maybe needs to go on tour and, <laughs> and teach, you know, <laughs> I should set up an Instagram account. <laughs> oh, Absolutely. <laughs> For your cat, yes. Yeah, obviously. What would you call I don't, it? I don't have a cat, just for the record, but I'm just using... <laughs> just so everybody knows. an empty cat. <laughs> yeah. What would your cat's name be if you did have a cat? I had a cat. Her name was Assisi. I think she may have been a Buddha manifesting to help me get through grad school by purring. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. I'm happy you had that uh, that teacher. So, okay. Um, we're, we're kind of tracking down this idea of emptiness and I, I think it's necessary for, for you, you put the brakes on if we need to, if there's more here, I'm sure there is, but the other idea or concept to me, for some reason, why these are associated is something that's hard to grasp from a kind of typical Western perspective is attachment. Mm, yeah. Can you connect these or? Yeah, definitely. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding around this idea of attachment and the way the way the term gets used, you know, in Western context, like, you know, psychology and psychotherapy yeah. where you have healthy Developmental attachment. psychology, sure. Yeah, exactly. Versus, you know, maybe some of the original terms in Asian languages that get translated as attachment. Um, you know, so for instance, the, the problem, the basic problem, and I'm going to say with like clinging rather than attachment, mm -hmm. because, you know, the word attachment, I think, can have a lot of a lot of different positive meanings. But um, one one meaning, I think, that kind of comes through with the idea of clinging is like a stuckness, like with attachment, you can be attached to somebody and let them be themselves and flower and grow. But with that sense of clinging or grabbing onto what you really want is something static. And, you know, again, coming back to the idea of emptiness, if each of us is constantly changing and evolving and what I think of as myself is going to be different in five seconds and it's going to be different in a year and different in 20 years, then the idea of something external to myself that is going to make me happy is like super problematic because it might bring me joy right now. But what happens in the next moment? You know, what happens when the thing I bought that I loved so much when it breaks? You know, if if my happiness depends on it being in a, a certain condition, I'm inevitably going to become unhappy when it changes, when it breaks, when I lose it, when it no longer pleases me, when I change. So, you know, I think we tend to locate our happiness in objects or in circumstances, and what the Buddhist tradition is saying is, well, that's the problem. <laughs> you know, happiness, true lasting contentment and joy and peace, that kind of thing comes from like from letting go, but not because we're like, I'm not attached to anything anymore. I've overcome that. <laughs> it's it's when we understand like, no, I already have everything I need. Like there's already a Buddha within me. Can I nourish that instead of going, I don't know, for extra followers on Instagram or like whatever it is that we think is going to make us happy. So it's, it's that, it's that clinging, it's that stuckness that in a certain sense prevents us from like fully unfolding our wings um, because we're trying to really nail this identity that is too small, that's never going to fit, that's, that's not going to keep up with our constantly changing actual, you know, circumstances 
And that doesn't refer to who we really are. It refers to the, you know, to the mask and sort of like a Greek tragedy kind of sense to the mask that we're trying to perfect for the world. Like mm-hmm. if that's where our energy goes, we're never going to turn it inside and discover the true source of happiness. Is that, is that at all addressing your question? Yeah. And I, I was thinking about how often um, I liked your kind of theatrical play on the inflation that happens mm-hmm. around letting go when it, it, I, I think uh, my thought was that there's this uh, binary either or kind of thing. Like if I've let go and I'm not attached, then socially I am defensive, guarded, protected, not, I, I have to be either one or the other. And I think what you're saying is really valuable because if I'm, if I'm not attached to this identity and I also have love and appreciation and connection and a desire to see other people's true nature too, um, that's a problem. That's a very healthy worldview, but, but, but I, okay. So yes, I, I think you, you got it. But as you were talking also, I realized that I wanted to pick back up the thread of your early Christian experience. Yeah. Before we go there, if you don't mind, I want to just come back to your sense of like, if you're, if you're not attached, you're like a little bit standoffish. Yeah. I kind of think of that as like performative non-attachment, you know, like like trying to act out a role of like, I don't, I don't need other people. I don't need whatever. You never get to true non-attachment through trying not to be attached. You only get there by understanding (laughs) the actual nature of yourself and everyone around you. It's not possible to think I am real and you are real and not be attached in some way or performing non-attachment. Like the only way is through really cutting the roots of these like mistaken assumptions that we have about the world. So I just wanted to like, I wanted to throw that out there because I think what you mentioned is actually really important that people have a vision of what non-attachment looks like. Mm-hmm. I mean, I tried to do it in my 20s. I was like, I'm going to be so Zen. I'm going to have like as few possessions as possible. And it, it doesn't, it doesn't lead to the Dharma. It leads to like, you know, looking like the Dharma. Very regal when you, you kind of get out there. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's an important, um, I'm glad you came back to it because there, I, I don't know. It's so prescriptive, you know, like yeah. it, there, there's so much out there that's prescriptive and what I whether it's psychedelics or meditation practice or making love or, you know, giving to others, uh, you know, uh, o- opening, you know, I love that comment about uh, enlightenment's an accident, but meditation or spiritual practice makes you accident prone. And so <laughs> great, having yeah. those kinds of practices to see beyond, and this starts to get into some of our conversation later on that we're going to have about shamanism. But to see beyond the kind of socialized identity mm-hmm. uh, and my projections and judgments about your socialized identity and how I'm experiencing you, um, to, to get above, beyond, or through that, I, I think is probably one of the most worthy and important tasks of our lives as, as human beings. Yeah, but definitely not- in this moment of racial reckoning and oh. stuff like that, you know, kind of trying to skip over it, go around it, push it out of awareness doesn't really work. Right. Well, okay, so can we jump back to uh, you as an early Christian? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so what did, I mean, what was your, what was Buddhism or how, what was your initiation into Buddhism? 
Yeah. So, um, so in the church of Christ in the small town where I grew up, like the idea was nobody, but that like nobody, but people in the church of Christ was going to heaven. Everyone else was going to hell. So I think, you know, I had this curiosity about other traditions. Like I remember this one day in Sunday school when we were supposed to like learn about other religions. And I was like, yeah, finally, here we go. And then it turned out we were going to learn about like Methodist and how to convert them to being church of Christ and like Baptist and how to convert. And I was like, I don't think this is going to (laughs) work. Yeah. So I went from that, like, you know, childhood of being, you know, pretty into the whole God idea. And then as I got older and I kind of understood a bit more about like the tradition as it had developed, I was like, this is not intellectually tenable for me. So like by the time I headed off to Rice, big city of Houston, all these new experiences, I was agnostic and I was searching, but I didn't know what I was searching for. Like I thought it was maybe philosophy or you know like religion i just thought of religion as christianity um and i was not interested at all but then (laughs) like i had always been interested in asia and asian cultures and i think at this point in my life there's just a strong karmic connection between me and like asian buddhism and uh so i signed up for this like east asian cultures survey course and ann klein happened to be one of the three professors and she assigned us this text basically on emptiness and as soon as i read it i was like <laughs> i've been thinking about this my whole life like somebody made a religion about this this is yeah. They got a fucking name for this thing. This is amazing. Exactly. Like for thousands of years, people have been like geeking out and nerding out about this stuff too. And like now I get to read that. So yeah, it was love at first sight slash an immediate karmic connection. I added a religious studies major. I jumped right in. Like, you know, I went to Thailand to, to practice meditation intensively after I graduated. Like I just did everything I could to really understand like in the traditional context what this tradition was about mm-hmm. that was our, so you were doing your bachelor's then yeah it was a million years ago it was like 97 oh. probably yeah you did that and did you jump straight into doctorate oh heck no i got out and i was like i'm never going back to school again <laughs> I spent eight years, you know, teaching and traveling in Asia, teaching like secondary English in a classroom and traveling to Asia and basically just trying to figure out like if if all I want to do is study the Dharma and maybe teach it one day, like what does that look like? And uh, eventually I ended up back in grad school because I just had, you know, questions that would need research to answer them. Um And, you know, in that eight year period, I I had done the teaching thing. I had also kind of started to teach meditation because I was, I was living in Fort Worth. There was just like hardly any meditation instruction on offer there in English. And I had friends who were like, we want to learn. And I was like, I guess I am a certified teacher (laughs) and I have been meditating for a while. And And my, my meditation teachers gave me the thumbs up. So yeah, that's, that's what I had been doing before I kind of came back to grad school at Rice. So your travels, what, what were, how did you find teachers? How did you like spiritual teachers? How did they show up in your life? Uh, Well, in an East Asian uh, culture survey course. (laughs) Yeah. And really, I would say, you know, she's the one who catalyzed my whole interest in Buddhism and she and her husband, Harvey at Don Mountain, 
you know, I would say kind of became some of my first teachers. I was very wary of practicing Tibetan Buddhism in the beginning, just because of my not great (laughs) breakup with Christianity. Like it was very, it, it has all the outward forms of religion. I was like, not interested. So there was someone, I, I, I added my religious studies major. And so the next semester after I took Anne's class, I was in a class with Bill Parsons and, you know, he brought in um, Ajahn Ken from Wat Budawas in sort of the Northwest corner of Houston, this, this Thai temple. And uh, Ajahn Ken, again, it was, I think just kind of a karmic connection. Like he came in, he looked so serious. He's a, he's a Thai monastic. So he had like the saffron robes and like very straight face. He's like telling us about monastic life. I was like, Oh, that's kind of scary. And then during the Q and a session at the end, like some other student like puts up their hand and asks, like, you've been kind of sticking your, your hand into your robes and looking at this thing, like during this time, what are you looking at? And he, he pulled out a watch and he goes, my watch and smiled. And I was like, sold, I'm sold. I want to, I want to do what you're doing. (laughs) So I started going out to Wat Budawas. I started, you know, practicing meditation. I was very into Gandhi, who like made a lot of vows. I was like, I'm gonna make a vow that I'm gonna sit in meditation every day. And so I just kind of, I, yeah, I jumped in with them. And, you know, I have had other teachers, like mostly I've gotten connected with other Tibetan teachers through Ann and Harvey. And I'm, you know, I'm, very drawn to like Ajahn Chah, one of the great masters of the Thai forest tradition in the last generation. I'm very cautious about really forming a strong relationship with people as teachers, because it's a very, it's a very intimate relationship. And um, I want to really know someone before I, you know, proceed to that kind of depth. Um, But uh, I feel like I've, I've really lucked out, especially with Ann and Harvey, um, like meeting trustworthy teachers and, and people who can explain in a Western cultural context, you know, the importance of the Dharma. Well, you've just commented on two of the podcast participants, Bill Parsons and Harvey, both have been on the podcast. So check out those episodes. <laughs> uh, and I'm still stalking. So she's, <laughs> she's going <laughs> to. One of these days, hopefully. <laughs> one of these days. She said she'd do it, but well, uh, we, we were sitting uh, sitting together one day, and I said, I'm going to knock on your freaking door. <laughs> uh, no, yeah, good community. And, and Dawn Mountain is down here in Houston. It's a wonderful meditation space for the community. A- anybody can go in there anytime, and uh, I, like, I like the work they do a lot. Um, did you meet any folks on your travels? Did you ever stumble into the kind of mystery, mystical uh, arenas? <laughs> um, I've had a lot of really wonderful opportunities and experiences on my travels. I would say, I mean, I, I feel a strong connection with, um, with Pulahari Monastery in sort of the foothills of, of the Himalayas right outside of Kathmandu. Uh, they have a really wonderful philosophy program that I did. I haven't really, I haven't really kept in touch with, you know, the teachers from there. I actually have a couple of friends and colleagues who are translators for that program, but, you know, I guess a lot of, a lot of the sort of transcendent moments that I had abroad and, and here at home too really have come more through retreat. So, you know, 
I, I don't have like these amazing stories of sort of like meeting a teacher and just like immediately mm-hmm. having an ecstatic experience. I will say though, you know, the first time that I went to Wat Pa Nanacha in sort of northeastern Thailand, uh, where I was, I, I, I traveled there with my teacher Ajahn Ken and some people from his monastery. And uh, when I when I kind of came back up there to uh, to stay and do practice at Wat Pa. I had this amazing experience where for probably like 36 or 48 hours, my mind was just naturally clear just all the time, like no thoughts. I've never had that experience before, even in like deep meditation. And uh, it just, it was a beautiful like introduction to that place and to the blessings, I think of like the Thai forest tradition. Um, They don't talk a lot about blessings in that tradition. Tibetans talk about them a lot, but I really felt the power of the place to support my practice. So it's not like a teacher meeting story so much as like a place meeting story, but it was very powerful. Well, it could be a tree or a cat, I guess, you know, that's. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) What in your spiritual practice, what kind of conflicts did you notice considering your Christian upbringing and how did you navigate those? Yeah, I think for me, um, the big, the big one that I think I'm still working with, well, I mean, obviously there's this idea of original sin and I don't want to blame like my entire sense of like deficient emptiness or like a, you know, sort of a deficiency at the core of my being. I don't want to blame it all on that, but I think there's something powerful to, you know, in those formative years being kind of told like, like you really can't trust anything that comes from within yourself. It's all sinful. Um, so there's that. And I feel like the emphasis on Buddha nature is a really powerful, like counterbalance to that. Um, but the other thing I would say really is, you know, just a resistance to feeling that there is one truth and I have it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I think it's turned me into a very specific type of Buddhist, like more of a Buddhist pluralist. Um <laughs> And, you know, a lot of people seem to have this natural, like, faith and devotion. And I feel like I come much more from a place of skepticism, personally. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think, you know, all of that is probably still the heritage of having really invested in, in one tradition as a small child and then having the experience of waking up out of it and realizing, I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true. I think some folks have maybe been distorting some things this whole time. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, I think to be able to like appreciate and get into the more devotional or the more heartfelt side of Tibetan Buddhism in particular, it's been a long trust building process. Um, and, you know, so I guess that's more like the content, I think in terms of the process of the spiritual life, I very much came into like Buddhist practice with this kind of like fundamentalist Christian attitude of like, I'm going to do everything. If I'm not doing, you know, like a maximum amount of stuff, I'm not doing everything I could be, Um, you know, a lot of judgment toward myself and others. Like I'm failing as a Buddhist, you know, the sort of stuff you think you're leaving behind when (laughs) as a Westerner, you come to like an Asian tradition. Um, But I found it's been a really long process of like, you know, starting out my spiritual journey very rigid, you know, sitting down, I'm going to have 
pristine mindfulness all the time when I'm sitting to like, now I'm just much more like relaxed. (laughs) Um, God, it just feels better. Oh my God. I feel better when you say it like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not sustainable to be that tight with your practice for me. I'm just sitting with the, um, with, uh, spiritual practice and your, I I can't imagine what you started seeing when you look at all these traditionally Tibetan spaces. And I mean, it's, or it's interesting. It's a different, like religious aesthetic space. Yeah. And for a Christian, it can be pretty overwhelming. You know, again, I have to come back to karma on this one because like the Church of Christ, I mean, they're so like iconoclastic. They don't even have, you know, crucifixes like they don't want anything other than just like a simple cross because it's too idolatrous. So it's like extremely stripped down religious symbolism. And for me, the whole Tibetan thing was like, oh, I love the aesthetic of this. Like, I was not concerned with, like, wrathful deities, you know, drinking blood out of a skull cup and stuff. I was like, this is really cool. Just I don't want to have to, like, bow down to a llama, <laughs> you know? <Yes. laughs> like, my hangups were very <laughs> probably not typical. I think a lot of people do get freaked out by the whole, you know, the aesthetic and the iconography. But I loved it. It felt like sacred space. Yeah. It's just, I wasn't sure I trusted, you know, the model of spiritual practice that was on offer. That's very devotional toward the Lama, the guru. And, you know, that's the part of it that having come in from an academic study of Tibetan Buddhism, I was like, yeah, but you also see how these guys were putting themselves at the pinnacle of society. And here's all the advantages they got from, you know, their position and, how do you tease apart power and economics from, you know, a spiritual authority? So it, it really took me experiencing what a, what a really, you know, good hearted, compassionately motivated Lama or teacher is about for me to be like, Oh, okay. <laughs> now I get it. So is that what you were getting at earlier when you were talking about the political aspects of you were talking about status power uh, in, in these Tibetan practices and, your analysis and your dissertation was looking at, at least partially looking at that? Well, the sort of the historical narrative that I tracked in my dissertation, um, it does have to do with sort of the political and the economic power that, you know, how do I say it? Like having, having the dominant philosophy of the time, like what comes with that, you know? And so what I was tracking really was Dolpopa in sort of the early 1300s starting this new school, what became a a new school of Tibetan Buddhism and the way, you know, people, the way, the way things worked in old Tibet was you had monasteries, you had different sects and really each monastery was kind of supported by local rulers. So there ended up being these alliances between Buddhist sects and local rulers. And in my dissertation, really where that all comes to a head is in the mid 1600s when there's kind of a civil war in Tibet between two different political factions backed by two different religious factions. Mm -hmm. And it's during that time that 
that the folks who ended up wi- winning the Galupa school, who the Dalai Lama is the, the sort of the head of, not exactly the head, but he's the most recognizable figure of it. You know, when when the fifth Dalai Lama came to power in the mid 1600s, they actively tried to suppress and crush um, the the backing that the Jonang, you know, leaders that I had written about, the backing that they had, um, and also their philosophical texts. So that I just found this, you know, intertwining of philosophical dominance and political dominance in ways that I found very interesting. And, you know, I think it's, it's always, it's always something problematic always seems to come from this concatenation of political and religious power. Um, it doesn't yeah. seem very Buddhist. I mean, <laughs> no, <laughs> like people, people were like fighting each other over emptiness, <laughs> which <laughs> is absurd. <laughs> and what? yet people are still people. <laughs> Right. Uh, Yeah. Say more about that. People are fighting people over infinite emptiness. Yeah. I mean, it's a bit of an exaggeration, but like the school, the school that ended up winning this, this civil war, the Galupa school, their take on emptiness is very much what my authors would call rongdong. That's self emptiness. You analyze your sense of self, you find nothing and you have to stay right there in that not finding and it is a sacred space. Um, so that was their view of emptiness. And it was developed partly as a backlash against my guy, Dolpopa, um, writing that that there's this other emptiness, that Buddha nature is truly established, that it's, that it's empty of everything other than itself. So they really disliked that idea. So when they, when they took over at least central Tibet in the mid-1600s, they ordered all of Dolpopa's writings to be locked up. So nobody was allowed to print them. Nobody was allowed to study them. And, you know, because of that flow of political power, there was also a suppression of that idea in central Tibet for a couple of hundred years before people were able to actually, you know, unearth those texts again and, and start practicing and, and printing and, and teaching them. It's like the, the Eastern definition of enantiodromia, like, uh, the emptiness, non-attachment, and if you don't believe what I believe, I'll fucking kill you. you know? Right? Yeah. <laughs> like it, it's baffling to me because you think about that in Christianity all the time, where it's like forgiveness and love and acceptance and all that thing. And if you don't believe what I believe, I'll war you. You know, or we'll create a denomination. Right. Or so it is. I mean, of course, right? Of course, this happens. Uh, yeah. Jeff Kripal and I had a great conversation on you know, the, the, the need for a secular political landscape. Mm. Uh, and certainly what's happened in the West, you know, is that religions have proliferated, but it does prevent, hopefully, uh, not always, the religious, um, the tie between the religion and the, the political factions. But it, uh, yeah, I hear it that, that you're exaggerating, but it doesn't sound like you're exaggerating. I mean, there's a there's a battle and a civil war, and like, are, are when you were reading all this stuff, are they even slightly conscious of the conflict, like in themselves? Like, 
I should just say, like, I've been fascinated by Tibetan history since I was an undergrad. So, like, the very first paper I wrote was about Tibetan history, basically, for, like, my my final paper in my, my course with Anne. So, like, that none of this was a surprise to me. Um, and I should just say also, you know, it's not that the Gulukpas squashed the Jonang school because of their beliefs on emptiness explicitly. It was more that both sides had the backing of powerful Mongols. So like whoever took over Tibet, unless they just wanted to keep fighting different sects of Mongols, was was going to have to, you know suppress in some way their one, uh, adversary. One, one ring of power to rule them all you know that's the yeah yeah exactly and especially if the rings are mongols you don't want that coming back again and again mm-hmm. <laughs> um but what happened was and this is the part that i find really interesting and i i don't want to posit a causal connection because i'm not sure there is one but like there's the Gulukpas on one side with one definition of emptiness, this, this more reductive, you know, rangtong, self-emptiness. And then on the other side of this civil war was the Kagyu school, um, which by that point had a version of Shandong. And then the, the, the Jonang school, which was the originator of Shandong. So it was like a rangtong versus Shandong civil war. <laughs> but it wasn't say. about, pardon? That's fun to say. yeah. Yeah, it's it's kind of heartbreaking to hear, but <laughs> uh, it wasn't about like the philosophy per se. It was it was who had the support of what Mongols and who had like these longstanding, you know, clashes with each other. But at the end of the day, the outcome was still that you know intellectually, this Shentong version of of Buddha nature was suppressed for a couple hundred years. Oh my gosh. I mean, what a, what a wild concept. Yeah. Uh, so- and no, there's not a lot of like recognition of like, Hey y'all, isn't it crazy that we're trying to kill each other over the Dharma? Right. You know? Yeah. The irony bells did not go off there. Well, it's, it's almost like their, their kind of religious spiritual nature wasn't leading the charge. I mean, it was about a social, political, tribal, like geographical, uh, power and you know maybe Maslow is right like when your home's getting yeah. you know shit on you're gonna fight and who gives a shit what you think about emptiness when <laughs> you know like I it, it is kind of a function of priority at that point and so yeah. I, I don't mean to reduce it to say how how dare they not be aware of the conflict because I don't know what I would do if somebody's trying to burn down my house I mean yeah yeah, and it was it was it was the political rulers who got into it and they kind of ended up dragging along, you know, these different yeah. monasteries kind of within their territories. And the monasteries were getting sacked and destroyed. So, you know, with that kind of trauma, it is hard to hold the larger yes. view of things. Um, but that's, you know, part of to just like finish sort of this narrative arc of the political conflict. In the 1800s in Tibet, in Eastern Tibet, you have really like the opposite of that civil war. You have these great teachers consciously making an effort to make connections across traditions, to receive the lineages of multiple traditions, to hold them. You know, there's a really conscious effort in the opposite direction. And that's when you see Shentong, this emphasis on Buddha nature, that's when you see it coming back again. 
So, you know, there's like a dark moment, but there's also a real dawning of something different. And it's, it's partly because of those efforts in the 18 and 1900s that when China invaded Tibet in the 1950s, many of these smaller lineages, their texts had been written down. There were more people to transmit those lineages. Like a lot more would have been lost in the 1900s if not for this movement in the 1800s. So there was, there was an awareness of the history and a willingness really this time of the spiritual leaders, you know, they were the ones out in front driving this. Um, and, and it really ushered in a time, a kind of golden age of, you know, practice and, and writings and transmission of the Dharma. But there's a, there's inherently a pluralistic uh, uh, cohesion that, that, that's created. It is not an either or. Right. Conflict. So you, it's certainly a, a, a feather in the cap for pluralism, you know, where you, yeah. you know. Yeah. That's it's not... actually, it's called the Rime movement, the non-sectarian movement. Huh. So there's a specific, you know, anti-sectarian bent in the moment to it. Oh my God. Yes. When you've had your, you know, genealogy totally disrupted in civil war, like uh, you're highly motivated. Right. Right. <laughs> well, good. That does seem like it's a good kind of close out of the historical piece. Um, I, I want to, the, the two threads that um, your paper here, and I, you know, with your permission, I'll include a link to this sure, sure. on uh uh, academia, the, the <laughs> I love your title of this paper, Shamalama Buddha: Occult <laughs> Techniques and the Popularization of Tantric Ritual in Tibet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I should probably publish that as like a book because I think just totally. Tantra, Tibet, you know, like it has all the buzzwords. People oh, are totally, like, yes, <laughs> yeah. You've got you've got a bird on it. You've got a tantric bird oh, on yeah. it. You know, you're good. Put a tantric bird in that. <laughs> uh, so the the important piece for I think where where this podcast has been mining I mean there's a lot of interest in psychedelics and shamanism and what 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 that even is mysticism uh we I have not really explored uh the tantric landscape so would you kind of set us up a little bit uh you know either either route here or I start I I I would actually maybe be more directive I would like you to start with some tantric uh definition of terms what is that what does it mean um what what people tend to get wrong uh you know and how they um you know see some bendy person having sex for 14 hours as defined by as but like so that that thing let let's tend to that but I really liked this thread in your paper about the the not only the definition of shamanism from a kind of t Tibetan lineage, and it's very similar to the definition that my last participant gave me about shamanism when working with altered states of consciousness. Uh, so yeah, lob ball, take that, and let's talk tantra. <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> um, yeah, I should also just say uh, I wrote that paper quite a while ago, and it didn't occur to me to reread it before we're talking. So there's no telling if what I'm about to say matches with it. <laughs> I'm so excited! I know your paper better than you do. Than you I, yeah, do. <laughs> this is kind of a, a fresh moment to explore. I'm going to quote um, you back to yourself, and we'll see what you think. <laughs> oh man, that sounds so awkward. Um, <laughs> yeah. So the basic definition of tantra. I mean, these two big categories of Tantra and shamanism, like both of them are actually really kind of difficult to explain yeah. or to, to, to define. Um, 
But for Tantra, I'll just speak about Buddhist Tantra because there are different forms. And I know some people, um, I think maybe even Jeff kind of used Tantra as like a comparative category to look mm -hmm. at, at similar practices that people are doing in sometimes pretty different traditions and have a way of thinking through that. But in a Buddhist context, um, like from a Tibetan Buddhist context anyway, uh, like, so I come from the, the Nyingma school of Tibetan Buddhism. Um, and in that school, we have basically three categories of teachings. So there's sutra, which is, you know, teachings about like all three of these at the end of the day are about the same thing. You know, they're all about emptiness. They're all about Buddha nature. They're all about impermanence. They're all about lack of an inherently existent self, but they come at it from very different angles. Mm -hmm. So the sutra angle is, you know, you memorize the definition of emptiness, you memorize the definition of impermanence, you know, it's all about, um, I would say kind of the intellectual understanding of the basics and you're, you're learning how to sit and meditate and, and just have your mind not go everywhere all at once. So you're really kind of developing the tools and the skills that you need to investigate reality more deeply. Um, the sutra level, the sutras, each of these are a different category of texts. So the sutras are what we might think of as like traditional Buddhist teachings, you know, what the Buddha taught, later texts from the Mahayana tradition that developed over, you know, about the 1500 year or more than that, almost, almost probably, um, a couple of thousand years after the time of Buddha, these, these different texts that kind of developed in India. So you have, you know, um, texts in the sutra tradition on emptiness, on compassion, on, you know, all sorts of different topics, um, all of it kind of coming at it from what we might call like a more conventional or like ordinary perspective where you're, you're just, you're learning facts, you're learning how to work with your mind. Yeah. Um, this is like a total, hopefully it's not too much of an oversimplic oversimplification, but like each of these categories, we could unpack it, you know, in a lot more detail. Um, if you look at Tantra, again, in a Buddhist perspective, you're still working with emptiness. You're still working with compassion, but you're doing it in a very different way. So the idea behind Tantra, and there are many, you know, Tantric texts, um, there's a whole, a whole system for sort of introducing people to these teachings through what are called wongs or empowerments, you know, a big ritual where everybody is, is in a room and they receive almost like an introduction to the energy of this Buddha. So whether it's a Buddha of compassion or a Buddha of wisdom, whatever, um, you know, the teacher is kind of holding that energy. And then everyone in the room is, it's like you're all tuning forks, you know, and the, the one big tuning fork has been struck and the idea is everyone in that room receiving that that transmission kind of learns how to vibrate at that frequency. So that's like your entry into tantric practice. There's no sex involved. Um, like I think there are some secret tantric something something sexual things in the Buddhist tradition. Still, I've never run across them at all. Like I think they're very rare. They're very advanced. If you're going to do Buddhist Tantra and you haven't been like at it in a secret community for years already, I would definitely not trust anyone who's like, hey, man, I have some Buddhist Tantra here. <laughs> you want it? <laughs> well, because that is a term that you used quite a lot, which is esoteric. And yeah, and um, 
even the I, I understand this in probably too rationalistic, but but the 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 sutra part of, to to understand a language system and be able to comprehend and identify and recognize and you know why do we do this ritual and where do I stand and how do I do this and when do I <clears throat> excuse me bow and you know that places me in a kind of mythic worldview. And and that would be, I think, an important uh, precursor to being able to get into some of this deeper stuff. But by its very nature, I, I, you know, I I have to go through it experientially and intellectually in order to even be enter to enter into the hidden room that's behind the hidden room to be able to do the crazy sex practices. Yeah, yeah, and the crazy sex practices. <laughs> I mean, my understanding of them is they're they're about the movement of energy in your body, yeah. and you can do that through a variety of means. So right. most of it, you're imagining, you know, moving energy through the body, and by imagining the movement, it happens, right? right. So it's not like the real tantra is the sex tantra that happens in a back room somewhere. It's sort of like you know, <laughs> there's a whole powerful tradition, and, and part of the reason that you start with sutra is that you have to understand the basic idea of emptiness before you start imagining yourself as a Buddha. Like if it's an ego trip, you're just, you're, you're taking your chances for enlightenment and you're lighting them on fire and you're dropping them on the ground and you're just kind of watching them burn. Mm -hmm. Like without, without the understanding of what you're doing, you know, not only is it possible for people to go on all kinds of crazy ego trips, but like, I mean, people have accidentally accidental like Kundalini awakening experiences when they start working with their body's energy system in a way that's too intense for them. And there's just all sorts of stuff that can go wrong when you're working with your energy system and when you're trying to hold yourself and see everyone around you as a Buddha. Like I, I ran into this one woman in India at a retreat and you know, I asked her like, oh, what's your name? And she gave like some kind of Buddhist name, you know, the name of a Buddha. And I was like, where are you from? And she was like, she gave the name of like a pure land. And I think she was not okay, uh -huh. you know? <laughs> so, you know, I think that's part of the reason like with in a Tibetan context, you use the sutra path to really get grounded, to understand like I can, I can arise as a Buddha because I'm not actually this to begin with. It's a, a, a thought comes from Alejandro Chaul and I, another you know fellow rice person. Yeah. When we were talking, what seems like years ago, he was. When you said it earlier about the sutras, I, but my first comment or thought was that you know Buddhism has a lot of lists. There's a lot of lists, <laughs> and a lot of repetition. And yeah. Ale and I talked about these, you know, the hundred thousand whatevers. You know, yeah. there are several hundred thousand whatevers. And the way he said it, that even it still stands out today, he said, you know, what his teacher told him is that in order to hold uh, the milk, you know, you need to have a bowl that is uh, sufficient to do for the task. Mm -hmm. And that these kinds of repetitive practices are strengthening. And, and of course, we want to cut corners. I mean, Daniel LaRusso, right? He doesn't want to paint the fence and he doesn't want to like, you know, I use this shit all the time, by the way. I love the Karate Kid reference. So like, he's like, come on, you know, like, and, and Miyagi's like, oh, daniel son, you need to, you know, paint the fence. Like, I think it's so important to go through these practices mm -hmm. because we have that part of us that wants to jump in the deep end and 
oh my God, if I don't know how to swim, then yes, I'm, I'm drowned. And yeah. I really liked your story about that, you know, woman who kind of obviously identified with this kind of uh, div- divinity, but didn't have the humility to put herself into right relationship with that kind of, um, you know, cause, uh, reality, if anything, reality is uh, much more overwhelming and wildly incomprehensible than I've ever imagined until recently. And like, now I kind of have a slight grasp that I have no fucking clue <laughs> what this is. And like, to me, that's like earth, like I've said that before, but now I kind of know that it's like, <laughs> it is so far beyond what I ever imagined it. And like, I need to have my feet on the ground and, you know, to be able to start to encounter that. So as we're kind of meandering in here, you know, of course people want to jump into the, you know, esoteric back room and do the sexual practices, which we are going to talk about because I am going to quote somebody later. But <laughs> this sutra stage, um, I, I started jujitsu recently. And one of the things I, I, I read is that 90% of people quit in their white belt. Mm. You know, and of course, it's the same kind of stuff. Like, mm-hmm. God, I thought this was going to be about, you know, whatever. And I've got to learn how to, like, grab your collar 30 <laughs> times. In, right. Like, you know, so thank you. Yeah. For- yeah. You know, I, I think actually martial arts is a really good analogy for this. Um, I spent, I think, seven years um, studying Kung Fu from nice. Sifu Steve Cottrell, Authentic Kung Fu in Fort Worth. Nice. And, uh, yeah. And, you know, it's the same thing. Like I studied Wing Chun, which is all about precision. You're making yeah. precise angles and you're learning how to respond in very precise ways. And our, our, my Sifu, our Kung Fu teacher, wouldn't let anyone go out to spar with anyone else for years. He said, look, you're going to train yourself when you start like sparring with somebody, you're going to train yourself in how to respond and unless your body automatically responds with Wing Chun, you're going to learn how to fight with whatever comes out. Yeah. like And I think it's the same fight. thing. Yeah, exactly. Like, I'm a white girl with no fighting experience. Like, what would have come out would have been crap, you know? And, and I think it's the same thing. Like, until something is is automatic, you're not really able to, you know, to use it in a functional way. Right. So like with meditation, you know, if, if you're not really able to like have at least sort of a minimally stable mind and then you go in and you try and work with your chakras, probably, you know, 99 people out of a hundred will be fine. But like that one person might have real issues. And yeah, there's, there's something about sort of the humility of recognizing yes, like you, you kind of mentioned the foundational practices or Nundra and Tibetan Buddhism where there's I think in our tradition, there's five sets of things that you need to do a hundred thousand times. And, you know, if you're not willing to put in a few years and to do yeah. that, then <laughs> let's paint the fence, like, you know? Hey, exactly. Exactly. Like you don't get to look cool in a match with your unpainted fence in the backyard. Oh yeah. Don't leave your fence unpainted. Yeah. Did you do all these practices? Uh, yeah. Did you really? Yeah. Are you kidding? Like I'm a type A rice student. You're like, oh man, I took that on like crazy. 
yeah, like you tell me, do these 500,000 things. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I got a number. Good. Exactly. Let's go. <laughs> I have an app. I'm still tracking. I'm, I'm you know, yeah, I, I'm a little bit anal about this stuff. <laughs> There's technology for that these days. You know, yeah. you know. Okay. So yeah, like that, how does that change you? Like what, what have you noticed that those kinds of practices have, um, have altered or expanded or whatever word you want to use? Yeah. Um, you know, I feel like a broken record, but I kind of want to come back to this idea of purifying everything that is not Buddha nature. And, you know, the tradition talks a lot about purification. And I think like in a modern context, I think I tend to hear that as like, now let's focus on everything you've ever done that is bad. <laughs> mm. And, and from a, from a traditional context, it's much more about recognizing our own tendencies that are going to get in our way. You know, you talked about Satan as being, what is the obstacle in your path? Like those obstacles from this perspective are all internal. Amen. So it's like, it's, you know, <laughs> taking the time to do the repetitions. Like at some point you have to, you can't be thinking about where you're getting to, you know, you have to be thinking about where you are, what you want to drop. You know, I, I think a lot of times there's this idea of spiritual materialism, like what am I going to get out of doing these practices? And, totally. you know, the foundational practices are the opposite. Like, what do I just not need to carry with me anymore? So I feel like for me, what I noticed was a real clearing out of, you know, like a, a wearing smooth, like a buffing of a lot of rough edges that have been causing me and other people issues, but you notice them more, you know, when you're in kind of an intensive practice environment. So a lot of buffing out and a lot of, um, I would say opening up too, you know, really opening to something that's powerful and real and outside myself, which was something I really had shut down towards, I think after, you know, my breakup with Christianity, um, but the idea that you, you can't do Tibetan Buddhism, really, I think, without having a sense of openness to the flow of blessings, the openness to the lineage, that you're not doing it by yourself. I think that's what really cracked open for me in the process of, of you know, doing these foundational practices. So I still do them. I do them every morning. I mean, I don't ever want to stop doing them. It's like brushing your teeth. Yeah, exactly. Some people don't even do that. Yeah. It's like, well, I'm not showering, you're doing so I'm good. A hundred thousand like prostrations and like yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> Motherfucker, brush your teeth. Right. Look at what Claire's doing. You know, she's right. bowing six thousand times every day. Yeah, it's uh, not that hard. So uh yeah, that's my that's my meditation. Is my, uh, is my, <laughs> my my wife would like my uh, dental floss to be my meditation, but unfortunately it happens every third day or whatever. <laughs> uh, so, okay, t tantric. Now, I feel kind of like you said there were three things and you went, did you get all three? No. Sutra? Yeah, cool. Yeah, so I talked a little bit about Tantra. Um, and, and just to kind of connect the idea of the foundational practices with the idea of Tantra, um, in the foundational practices you're really opening yourself up to a flow of blessings. You know, you're practicing arising as certain types of Buddhas. You're practicing calling on, you know, the lineage, calling on external forces. And that's, those are all the things you're going to do in Tantra. 
Um, you know, we can talk more about tantric practice and what it is in a moment, but so there's sutra, there's tantra. And then for us, there's also Dzogchen, which is the great perfection. It's kind of like, it's kind of like you've spent all this time learning jazz and like internalizing the scales so that you can play them in your sleep. Like you, you just have the muscle memory to do all these things and then you let go. So like if jazz and improvisation is kind of the letting go, like that's what Dzogchen is in, in this school of Tibetan Buddhism. And there are other comparable practices kind of at the, the highest level, so to speak, of different Tibetan schools. But with, with Dzogchen, you've learned and done so much practice. And now you're learning to actually just stop, just stop, <laughs> just stop creating a view of yourself as ordinary, stop creating a view of yourself as a deity and just relax into what is. And um, it sounds very simple, but it's an incredibly profound set of practices. Oh my God, it sounds like bliss is what it sounds like. I mean, if you use a music metaphor, I'm I'm already, you know, <laughs> I get that. Like I'm not a jazz musician, but I certainly understand that, um, that sense, you know, of, of, of being on stage and performing music and, you know, allowing the, the kind of emotional experience and being very present, you know, you're not thinking about what you're saying or how you're moving or you're just moving. That, what a, that's very beautiful. I didn't know that actually about Zogchen. I've heard a number of lectures on, um, on it, but uh, to contextualize in this way, that really helps. Thank you. That, I like that a lot. You're most welcome. I mean, I think Dzogchen, sort of like Tantra, is one of these things that people, you know, they often feel like they're going through the lower practices so they can get to these. So, like, a lot of people want to start with Dzogchen. And I think you're you're just doing something very different if you start there. Mm -hmm. um, there's no way to to skip the years that it takes you know, again, to come back to that music analogy, like if you don't know the scales, if your body doesn't intimately know that instrument, the idea that you're going to just do something spontaneously and it'll sound remotely like music is, I think, overly optimistic. <laughs> but there are some people, I mean, some people because of their karmic inclinations or whatever, you know, it might work for them, but uh, that's not traditionally the way it was done. Karmic. You think, think you say like, karmic. No, go on. Sorry. Sorry. I just want to like put a PS on that. Like, I think the language and I think something similar is maybe the case in Zen, like the language of radical simplicity means something very different. If you contextualize it as coming after you've memorized all this stuff and you've done the hundreds of thousands or millions of repetitions of other things and then you let go like that's different from me sitting down as a 20 year old and being like i'm gonna just let go and see what happens like it, it would have been a bunch of like sex fantasies and food fantasies and totally. like not you know we're not arriving at the nature of reality right yeah you're like going down the pathways of mind and uh and like un undressing some kind of mythic other <laughs> yeah <laughs> Because I want this to be our entry. <laughs> I want this to be our entry. Aha! Here it is. So, uh, 
so here's here's something like I had an interview with a, f- a fella. I have fourteen pairs of glasses. Um, <laughs> I did an interview with a fella who um, blew my mind and um, is highly controversial and uh, and knows it. He's ve- very well aware of it, but he studies m- ancient medical texts. Mm. So uh, Greek latin texts that have not been translated because they need to be translated by somebody who understands medical language Mm -hmm. so he's one of a very few people that can do this Mm -hmm. so he reads the kind of christian bible in uh certainly the new testament in greek and suggests some very interesting practices of communion now, this is not that thread that looks at communion that a guy named Carl Ruck, you know, he would say the communion or the Eucharist was a psychedelic um, uh, ritual and h- highly influenced by the mushroom. And, you know, in fact, there were moments where Jesus and his band of, you know, disciples were basically just tripping in the nature and like having radical experiences, you know, and yeah, you would. <laughs> but what he talks about is um, the Eucharist involving sexual activity, but importantly, sexual fluids. And the, the body and the blood were, were uh, in this, in several traditions, these kind of early Gnostic, uh, very esoteric, of course, very sexual traditions involved taking uh, bodily fluids mm-hmm. as part of the, um, uh, the Eucharist, you know, the body and the blood. So... This is a quote from Samuel, uh, civilized shamans. Oh yeah. Uh, oh wait, no, that not Jeffrey that one. Samuel. Hang on, this is um, I, I miss I misquoted. This is where did you? Ah, Davidson, esoteric Buddhism. That's mm-hmm. that's this mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. Um, through the union of wisdom. Uh, wait, no, let me start with you. Actually, this is you. Uh, in such a ritual, the male initiate would bring a female sexual partner with him to the consecration in the process of which the Vajra master would perform a ritual to transform himself into the deity and then practice, practice ritual sexual union with the female partner. The, the initiate would then ingest some of the couple's mingled sexual fluids, the ejaculate of the master having been transfigured into the seat of the deity, the initiate himself would then couple with his female partner, thus assuming the identity of the deity. Here is the reading Snellgrove offers in his ritual, Snellgrove. Um, and then it goes on, of course, just to reiterate what you've just said before. So that's closer to a lot of formulation of what tantri- tantric sexuality is. Um, but even still, people that are practicing tantra, I'm imagining, are not going into the back of the room behind the room and embodying a deity and taking the semen of their master on their tongue and then you know then union union with the female consort who's also a deity like that ain't happening i'm assuming of course someplace somewhere that is happening i'm sure (laughs) but like talk about that for a second and let's kind of unpack that from like where we've misunderstood that and also where that those practices are placed in this lineage of tantric Buddhism? Yeah. So I think this is, you know, what might be termed like left-handed Tantra. Like um, there's always been an aspect of Tantra. And I should just say also, you know, Tantra, 
I haven't done much reading in the past probably seven years about like the origins of Tantra. So scholarship may have moved on from where I was when I wrote that paper. Mm -hmm. But at that time, there's a pretty strong theory that, you know, Buddhist Tantra, definitely Buddhist Tantra and what we would now call Hindu forms of Tantra, um, they seem to have originated very much in dialogue, possibly, you know, among communities in close contact, maybe in the region of Kashmir, sort of like Northwestern Indian cultural region. So there's a lot of contact between, you know, Buddhist Tantra and non-Buddhist Tantra, for lack of a better term. Um, And, you know, it sounds like at some point, those kinds of actual enactments may have happened. Um, Something that's, I think, unique and interesting about Tibetan history, though, and this has to do with the fact that um, the spiritual authority and the political authority were so like deeply mm-hmm. intertwined. Like most places that Tantra spread to, the rulers were not into Tantra. So it kind of had to stay underground. Tibet, as far as I'm aware, is the one like larger society where Tantra went above ground. And it's partly because of what I write about in that paper, you know, this process of taking something that's esoteric and it's, you know, mysterious and powerful, but everybody wants it. So how do you make it available to more people? You know, inevitably you come up with adaptations, people offering it, you know, to wider and wider circles. Um, But, you know, I think a lot of that kind of left-handedness got worked out of mainstream Tantra in Tibet because you have these monasteries and monks, you have, you know, institutional support for them. You don't, you just can't have people acting crazy and doing a bunch of sex orgies <laughs> while they're drunk <laughs> and like, you know, going out making animal sacrifice. Like you just can't have that stuff happening and still get like royal support. They're going to be like, no, I'm sorry. Y'all have gone too far. Like the real yogis and like these, you know, folks just, operating outside this world of good and bad they don't make good partners for the government (laughs) 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 so so like with tibet you know definitely by by the times i was looking into in my dissertation you really i'm not aware that that stuff was happening i'm not aware that it's happening i'm sure someone's doing it nowadays i've never heard of it pardon they're definitely doing it these days. Somebody somewhere is doing that these days. Definitely. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't get invited. <laughs> right. I'm not invited but, to that party. Yeah, I'm not cool enough. <laughs> yeah, but I think part of part of why this kind of left-handed Tantra is powerful and part of the reason it developed was to break through people's taboos. Like if you think about Hindu culture. If you think about what it means to be a high status Hindu person, you know, a Brahmin who has all these restrictions on you're not allowed to touch this and you're not allowed to eat that. If you think about this left handed Tantra in that way with people doing forbidden things, doing polluting things, Mm -hmm. um, it's about cracking open that sense of I am righteous. Pardon? Total trickster. Yeah, exactly. Like. You know, and I think that that strand is very central to Buddhism. Like there's there's acting in moral ways so you don't cause yourself and others harm. But at the end of the day, you have to let go of the duality of good and evil and, you know, and crack open to what is because it's not dualistic. You know, 
it's not something that fits neatly into any box. There's no conceptual category for reality itself. So, you know, those, I think that, that sort of so-called left-handed Tantra or these like transgressive forms of Tantra, the intention, one of the intentions is, you know, to crack open that idea that like, I'm a good person. I don't do that. Boom. I just ate meat. I just drank alcohol. Those things aren't shocking to us anymore. They don't function in the same way. They're not transgressive. So I think that's the reason that a lot of the sort of like underpinning, the sacred underpinnings of tantric ritual back in the day, they don't really work for us. Like part of a, a tantric, you know, it's called a tsoka, like a an offering, a gathering where you, you offer, you know, food and drink and whatnot to the deities that you've invited and you share it with your fellow practitioners there's a rule that you're supposed to have some, at least some small bit of meat and some kind of alcohol. And in the day, in the context of a Brahmin lifestyle, that would have been totally like to do that. You have to step beyond good and bad for us. It's normal. So it's not transgressive, you know? Well, <clears throat> well, but I thought of something that's so benign yet so powerful. If, if I challenge anybody watching or listening to, uh, this is like in the time of, of COVID and the pandemic. But I challenge anybody who is on a, an elevator regularly to get into the elevator and to face the opposite direction of the doors. And don't do anything. Yeah. I want you to observe your anxiety. I want you to observe other people's anxiety. And I think that's the potency of transgression. You know, I, yeah. I, of course, uh, this really makes it like, of course, if you have this like, dogma that turns into rigidity that turns into the moral question about what is good and what is not and then everything else is kicked out of the tradition you're going to have a societal compensation that says hang on let's let's write this ship because your entire um ethic is actually one-sided right and you're literally trying to transcend dualism <laughs> and so <laughs> You know, I, I, but it, again, I think what's so cool about this is that when you see it from a kind of unified whole, there's no need for othering. It's just complementarying, and you're 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 fixed together because this, or I guess this one, is created in in direct relationship to this one, and and that to me is kind of a radical idea and concept. I tend to like this side of things, <laughs> the left side. Yeah, I mean, you know. Yes. Uh, I mean, I'm not like, you know, uh, I, I would I would say I've got a bit of a tr transgressor in me. You know, I'm not trying to like be amoral, but I certainly like to poke at certain conventional norms socially and um, on some level, I guess, to keep myself guessing. And and that, you know, was probably frustrating to some people, but it like I just always want to be moving, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> moving mm -hmm. around. And and I, I know that I have I, I, I'm emotive in that way. And so I. I but I, I really just like, I certainly am attracted to that. Uh, not as if I want to be in the Gnostic orgy where there's doing all, like all the crazy shit, you know, like, but I definitely want to know the esoteric traditions and I want to have a choice yeah. to experience or know and read that kind of material that I just read and have it totally make sense. Yeah. Because when I first heard of all that, it was like, whoa. Like, of course it happens, but I, I had no, 
like from a Christian Western, right. really Judeo-Christian perspective that's so steeped in morality right. and like solar consciousness. It's like those kinds of dark underworld journeys are not, um, that's, that's, I mean, that's, that, that's evil, right? Like back to your mm-hmm. kind of original sin like that. We don't do that. Right, right. Like it's a strongly dualistic system. You yes. know, there's good and there's evil. And if you cross over to the other side, then you're evil yes. and you're not supposed to do that. Right, that's Instead bad. Instead of it's a hole. <laughs> yeah, you're you're bad for doing that. We're going to kick you out of the tribe. So yeah. uh, I, I'm looking time. I want to be mindful for us to have enough runway to, to close out. Um, so just first, what, what threads are we leaving out? Or is there anything that you have that you really need to say to kind of c- c- complete this conversation we're having today? Well, yeah, I think I'd like to just finish up with addressing Tantra and some of the other, you know, like the the transformative impact of, of what you're talking about. Um, you know, Tantra, even the kind of like sexual Tantra that people think of, maybe it's working with your energy system. Mm-hmm. And I think this is another huge gap in our sort of Western understanding of ourselves as beings, like even with mind body medicine, we're still not mind body spirit or mind body energy, you know, and, and part of what's powerful about Tantra is that you're going directly into the energy of lust or the energy of fear or the energy of hatred. You're going directly into them. It's, it's like a different version of analyzing to see where's my body. Is it truly existent? You feel that energy within yourself and you practice letting the storyline drop and feeling, you know, not just the energy of say hatred, but when you, when you take out, when you stop adding, I guess I should say, you know, this person is bad, they're evil. I need to like destroy them, whatever it is. When you stop adding that, it's just energy. And that energy itself can be used to transform your mind or to propel the spiritual journey. Um, And that's why there's such a proliferation of different images of different types of Buddhas in tantric practice, because you're harnessing different types of energies. And like you're saying, you know, like you look at at a wrathful Buddha and they're, you know, they have like flames for hair and they're carrying a skull cup and a knife and like, it's a terrifying iconography. But if you understand like what's being destroyed is what I can't let go of, you know, it's my attachment to a small sense of self, um, then you're, you're using the energy of that figure to get free. Whereas mm-hmm. usually that type of energy, you know, hatred just makes you more stuck. Understanding, being able to, to use like the pure, the, the, the natural form of that energy, it's not hatred anymore. It's something else. Maybe it's discriminating wisdom. Maybe it's the ability to cut through what's holding us back from really becoming the Buddhas that we are. So I just wanted to add that piece of Tantra is that, you know, you're really actually working with um, energies themselves. We could call them even emotions themselves. And instead of trying to prevent them from arising or not trying to feed them you're you're just looking directly into them and um it can be a very powerful form of practice i I like what you just said because the the thought for me was how often repression is the approach right and how uh you know don't hate 
Right. Like, what? <laughs> like, I, I'm now a mass, I'm massively in conflict. Like, now yeah. I'm a bad person because I, I have hate, you know, or yeah. I hate something. No, I'm a freaking person person. I'm natural, you know? It's like, like that, like, I think that you just summarized to me one of the most oppressive aspects of culture, mm-hmm. which is e- even in our emotional systems, when we, like, separate out, mm-hmm. um, I, I was uh, connected with this couples therapist at one point, and she had said, um, my husband taught me how to hate. And I really appreciated that because mm. it, it was such an important reminder around not, not to like evacuate from or mm-hmm. disconnect from or even worse, really repress and judge, mm-hmm. but to express, to get curious to what mm-hmm. is your hatred? How can I talk about that? Mm-hmm. And uh, and I just I appreciate any practice that has th- that fundamentally. Um, it's kind of an amoral uh, from from our tradition traditionally understood morality. It's kind of an amoral tradition because you're 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 not saying you know this one is good. You can love but don't hate. Right, right, right. I like the f- fire, like <laughs> skull cap, like Kali kind of like figure. Like I want you know where is that person in me and like how does that show up. Yeah. Yeah. And this is this is maybe a place to make a distinction between how the Buddhist tradition presents itself and like maybe what Jeff Kripal would say about. Well, I mean, lots of people would say about the amoral aspect of like mystical experience or these kind of like peak experiences. You know, the Buddhist tradition definitely sees these as expressions of enlightened beings. So like if if you're enlightened then whatever you're doing, whatever it looks like, is for the benefit of of whoever's around you. I mean, the problem is we don't know who's enlightened. Yeah. <laughs> or, or, or when you start thinking that you are enlightened and whatever you do is, you know, whatever is beneficial. You've transcended good and evil. Um, so, you know, there's definitely like a, an understanding still that these types of energies have a place within an ethical framework. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, you feel the hatred, you're not, you're not acting out of it. You're, you're like sitting within and experiencing it, um, and transforming it. So, you know, I think there's still a, um, there's a lot of gray area when it comes to Tantra and ethics that, you know, obviously we've seen people fall on their faces in many, many ways. Um, but like the idea of the tradition is that it's still unfolding within, sort of like the enlightened intention of a Buddha or at least the aspiration toward that. And then the practices that support that process. To to me, it's like, again, I love this thing that uh, my my friend Brian told me about Graham Hancock, where he said human beings are exceptional amnesiacs. And and to me, that's what practice is. Like a ritual practice is like, recognizing your amnesic nature and repeating, repeating, repeating to remind and remember that this is your experience. Yeah, I love it. It's a great way of summing up tantric practice, I think. Okay, well, that's good. <laughs> um, okay, so what? Uh, let's, let's close out. What else, uh, how do we want to close out? What do you think is important? Any slender threads that are left hanging? Um, I mean, I guess for me, like the kind of, I just want to like, reflect on the continuity of this theme of of buddha nature and of 
other emptiness of, you know, all these different techniques. But at the end of the day, they're about clearing out, you know, everything we've kind of accumulated on top of who we really are. Um, I think, you know, something similar can be said for shamanic practices Mm -hmm. that, that there's a sort of remembering, like a putting back together of the elements within ourselves, our connection with the world around us, our connection with powerful beings that are not physical. Um, Yeah. Or, you know, you mentioned psychedelics. I think they offer, you know, one of these, like a modality to crack open this this like container that we feel is so real just crack it open and for a moment you look around and you know everybody talks about the importance of integrating those experiences into daily life which is practice basically so i think these are different they're different ways in maybe but i feel that there's something really powerful at the heart of all of them well that, that i do think is the issue with psychedelics as a like party experience is that there's there there doesn't tend to be as much and this is i'm at risk of being moral here i'm moralistic i'm like oh but i i think one i mean look uh going to a rave on ecstasy i'm sure is exactly what it is ecstasy like i bet it's just freaking marvelous you know (laughs) but uh it's it's incomplete. I would imagine it's incomplete, or it could be. It's probably got more of a tendency to be incomplete than having something where you're a little more conscious, close-eyed, or connected with somebody else with MDMA. So that that it's it it's back to that like set and setting thing. And what I've learned from a number of people who are studying this, it, it's about preparation. Mm-hmm. So preparation, have the event, integration. And then how do you contribute to your daily living because of this experience? And uh, and I, I just don't know if many people, you know, certainly in their 20s where I was, um, are exploring with these kinds of substances and integrating it into their daily life. Because I know for me back then, it was like, whoa, that was a, that was a really good time. You know, that was amazing. <laughs> um, but it was incomplete. And yeah. so I think that kind of language can keep us from falling into the moral split, you know, like just recognizing that it's not a full experience, not that it's bad, not that it shouldn't be done. Uh, there are certain um, issues with responsibility and uh, harm to self and the environment, of course, but to have a practice um, supporting those kinds of glimpses into reality is, I, I think, um, will bring out a fuller experience. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, whether the glimpse is coming from meditation or, you know, you're walking in nature and just something cracks open or psychedelics, like, I think they're powerful. I think any of those glimpses, whatever they're, whatever their cause can set people on a different path. You know, a lot totally. of folks ended up on spiritual paths because they had that glimpse and they were like, I have to learn more. Totally. So yeah, I don't think it's like a, you know, thou shalt not kind of thing, <laughs> but like, what do you want from it? Yeah. You know, do you want the the one time or do you want to transform your life? I mean, you know, I want to transform my life, right? Like that, I, you know, even when I was younger though, it was like, I want, I mean, I, I just, I didn't have the container, you know, so my container was like rock and roll and staying up really late and like writing songs at four in the morning with your 10 friends, you know, like that was, (laughs) but that was a religious event, you know, I mean, 
Okay, we got to finish. I, like, <laughs> I love talking to you. This is really fun. And Likewise. I can tell you, this has been a fantastic education into some territory that I have studied before and certainly known peripherally, but I really appreciate the, uh, the insight that you've brought to the conversation today, Claire. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, I, I would have liked to have read that article beforehand, but <laughs> it, it's been super fun to, to kind of tie together. You know, these are different things that I'm really interested in. You know, obviously Dharma practice, and that's like a whole, you know, huge umbrella, yes. but also, you know, these other ways of exploring mind and exploring and connecting with nature. And so it's been con great to connect with you. I feel like it's we already kind of knew each other. I like know. we know so many of the same people. So yes. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. You too. Where do you want to send people? I should have thought of that. Um, probably com is the best place. Um, I'll send you a link to that and um, Look some below other stuff. I'll have a link. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And if if any you have anything else, just send it over and I'll, I'll include it in the the liner notes. Yeah, that sounds perfect. What a pleasure. Yeah, Thank likewise. Like okay. I appreciate your questions and your your context that you said.